Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Rurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Mona Johnson. Mona is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel. She is believed to be the first Arab Muslim immigrant woman to serve in the United States Armed Forces. Born in Cairo, Egypt, Mona immigrated to the United States in 1960. She suffered domestic violence and cultural discrimination and dreamed of a world where she could be treated as an equal. Mona's memoir invites the reader to join her on her journey of battling Islamic stereotypes and bias in two cultures as she battled bigotry. I'm happy she is here to share her journey of resilience and perseverance with Get Up Nation. Mona, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Mona, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been looking forward to speaking with you about your book. I love the line on the back that reads, if you like relentless determination, battling bigotry and stories of underestimated American women, then you'll love Mona Johnson's memoir. It is a fantastic book. Just came out this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Will you share some of the events which led you to America as a child? Sure. My father was involved in politics in Egypt, and this is in the early 50s. He and several army officers and police officers met and decided to lead a bloodless coup to remove the the king King Farouk of Egypt, who was basically seen as the puppet of the British who were colonizing Egypt at the time. And they succeeded. They did send him on his way. He went to to live in exile. And Egypt became its own sort of governance. And the first president of Egypt was the leader of the coup, who was Lieutenant Colonel Mohammed Naguib. And he was the first president. And taken over after him was Gamal Abdel Nasser, the second president, and then after that was Anwar Sadat, the third president, who was my father's very good friend. My father received a very high position after the coup because he was one of the inner circle. However, that came with consequences, such as he saw some of the inner workings of the government and did not like what he saw, like torturing people, capturing them. Any kind of dissidents were captured, imprisoned, tortured. And my father used his position to free those people. And as a result, this was seen as an act of treason. So Nasser wanted his head. And my father had to immediately leave Cairo, leave Egypt, went to live in exile in Saudi Arabia. And we soon followed 
And we lived there in Saudi Arabia for two years. In an instant, my life was uprooted from, from Egypt to Saudi Arabia. And I was eight years old. And we would have stayed in Saudi Arabia, except for the fact that this was the, the late 50s now. There was no education for girls. And my father's sole desire was for me to be educated along with my brothers. And that couldn't happen in Saudi Arabia. And so he decided to emigrate to America so that I could get an education. So here we we came in a July, right around July 4th, 1960. We ended up in California, grew up there, went to school there. We endured countless incidents of discrimination. Number one, because we were foreigners. Number two, we were dark foreigners. Number three, we didn't speak the language. And number four, we were Muslims. And in those days, nobody knew what Muslims were or who they were, or except in insults, you know, out of ignorance. I went to college. After college, I, I married my first husband, and it was an arranged marriage. My, my mother insisted that I marry a Muslim man, and that was what I was taught to do, what I was supposed to do in my child mind. <laughs> And I did, and it was an abusive marriage. It was not good. And after two children, I decided to get a divorce, and I went into the United States Army. That brings me to a very poignant part of the book at the beginning, where three words were spoken to you in Arabic by your toddler that changed your entire life. You were almost 30 years old when you heard those words from your daughter, your entire life, you'd been told, you write, you'd been told what to do. You'd obeyed all the rules and expectations. You quelled the conflict in your heart between your cultural values and your independent spirit. You write, all I ever wanted was to live a good life, be treated fairly, and to be equal. What now, I thought, who am I? Will you share the significance of that moment with me? Yeah. So this is my three-year-old daughter. And, you know, as we all know, all know toddlers, children learn from what they see and hear. And she was just parroting what she was hearing like a parrot. So she would tell me, I told her to go clean up her toys. And she says, Ikhrasi, mommy. Ikhrasi a bit. Which means shut up, mommy, shut up, girl, or shut up, bitch. <laughs> I just looked at myself in the mirror that that evening, I, first of all, I tried to correct her and say, you know, that's not nice. We don't say that. And she didn't know what she was saying, you know. But I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, wait a minute. This is not what I envisioned my life to be. This is not going to be the end of my legacy. I will not raise children that disrespect me in such a way that as as their mother, as a woman, as a person should not be. And that, that was an eye-opening moment. Yeah. yeah. Children do tell you, tell you like it is, and they wake you up. <laughs> you were in an environment of, of abuse in the home. You had you were surviving through domestic violence. Not only that, you were growing up in America, and one of the titles of the chapters is that you felt torn between many Islams. Will you talk a little bit about what you were experiencing at that point in your life and how you made the decision to get to the point where you were in more environments where you'd be treated fairly, where you could try to have relationships that really valued you? The chapter on the many Islams, I learned as I grew 
older and a bit wiser was that just like every other religion, just like every other culture, everyone has their own interpretation. Everyone has their own belief system, whether it be in your religion or another. There are subcultures in every culture. It was hard for me to accept that because I didn't know any better before, but I learned the only reason why I, I married my first husband was because he was Muslim and because he was Egyptian. And like my father, I compared him. My father was Muslim. My father was Egyptian. My father was the kindest man I had ever known and the finest, respected my mother with as if she was a treasure. And I thought I was going to get that. However, no, 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 no. Completely different culture. And I learned the hard way uh, how his family was when they came to visit, how disrespectful his father was to his mother. And the view of women was just so totally different. I had to step up and I had to earn my respect, so to speak, by speaking up. Each time I did, it turned into either a, an argument or no speaking for a few days or, or a physical assault. I wasn't going to raise my daughters with that example. I knew I was going to be the example for them, just like he was an example to his parents. My father was my biggest support. He worked for the United States military, U.S. Department of Defense, and he taught Arabic to officers and soldiers of the United States military in Monterey, California. And he knew how the military life was like. He knew that I wanted to be an Air Force officer when I was very young, when I was still in college. After my divorce, my parents were very, very supportive. And he encouraged me to go into the Army. I tried to go into the Air Force, but unfortunately, they weren't as quick with the paperwork at the time. So he told me, why don't you try the Army? I was already a nurse, and so I knew I'd be a commissioned officer. Joined the Army as soon as I ex-husband, as far as I could, illegally <laughs> and physically. And I made a life for myself in the Army. Of course, it had its ups and downs, but I just had to constantly pick myself up by the bootstraps, so to speak, and meet each challenge as it came without giving up. When you experience those challenging situations throughout your life, how has that process where you face challenges evolved over time? What techniques do you use when something frustrating or difficult happens to get back up? Is it the way you think about challenges? Is it a routine you do every day? How do you face those challenges and keep getting up? Well, it was a growing process. It's, I face them now a whole lot differently than I did in my 20s or 30s or 40s. Each one was a different step in my development, so to speak. In my 20s and 30s, I cried a lot. <laughs> of course, I cried. I didn't know what to do. I felt stuck. There was no way out of my situation. But then as I developed and matured, so to speak, I just took it one step at a time. Okay, I'm going to do this in order to go here. I'm going to do this to get to this step. This to, So it was step by step. I got a lot of encouragement, a lot of encouragement from my father. 
he was not only my father, he was my mentor. And he was so positive, so encouraging. And he kept telling me, never give up, never give up. There's always tomorrow. Tomorrow's a new day. And so this is how I looked at it from one challenge to the next, from one day to the next, one year to the next. It's just all step by step. You can't get to the top of the mountain with one step. (laughs) It's all a series. (laughs) (laughs) Will you share a little bit about your military service and some of the things that you're proud of that you accomplished there? I'm mostly proud of the fact that I'm one of the country's first nurse practitioners. The Army had a program that started in the early 80s called the Nurse Practitioner Program. And they had different specialties, pediatrics, women's health, adult, psychiatric, things like that, those specialties. And when I heard about this, the first thing I thought of was, well, first of all, I didn't know what nurse practitioners were, but when I learned what they were and that they worked in the clinic, clinic hours, clinic days, not weekends or holidays. That's the first thing that I saw. For me, it was a matter of practicality. I was a single parent for the first nine years in the Army. The first couple of years, I didn't think that I could make a career out of it because I had to work shift work, weekends, holidays. I just could not get reliable child care, no matter how hard I tried. And I ended up taking the girls in with me. They were two and four when I first went into the Army. I had to take them in with me to work because I didn't know what else to do. My sitters just didn't show up. And they didn't call me to say they weren't going to show up. And that's unacceptable in the Army. And I was reprimanded. And I didn't know how to get out of that. So then the nurse practitioner opportunity came up. And I took it. I took the course. My parents took care of the girls while I did that. And since then, for years, assignment after assignment, I did work in the clinic. And that worked perfect for me because I could put the girls into before and after day daycare, before and after school daycare programs while I worked Monday through Friday. And it was one of those things that you call invention is the mother of necessity or something like that. Necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that's how, that's one of my biggest accomplishments. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's- a few years later, I went to graduate school and received a master's degree in women's health. That's another accomplishment. And a third big accomplishment was I met and fell in love with my second husband. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And we married. Great. And that was at, at about nine years in, about halfway into my career. Mm-hmm. How satisfying um, was it for you to be in a healthy relationship and to have your daughter see that healthy relationship? It was a godsend. I would never, I mean, it took me nine years to remarry. A man like him, a few and far in between. Let me tell you, I was very selective. <laughs> uh, there, there's some some relationships that, I mentioned in the book, and some that I didn't. Yeah, I had to be very fastidious for my daughter's sake. And it turned out to be very, very satisfying and and good father. Excellent father. (laughs) That's excellent. And I, I wanted to bring up the quote at the beginning of the book that you selected. Maya Angelou wrote, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. 
Will you share the, mm-hmm. about the desire within you that drove you to write this memoir and why you hunger for your story to be told and shared? Number one is I, I wanted to leave a legacy for my daughters and my family, my brothers and, and their families. We don't have very many family members and certainly nobody knows our story and our story being as early pioneers and coming to America as Muslims from the Arab world. There were plenty of Arabs in this country, but they were not Muslims. The Muslims didn't start to immigrate until later, like in the 70s and and 80s and 90s and since. And we kind of felt like we paved the way for many of the, as far as stereotypes go. And and I needed my family and my daughters to know where they came from. And, and in addition to, you know, my history and what I've accomplished and the fact that my story is part of U.S. Army history. And it's part of especially U.S. Army Nurse Corps history. And my family's story is part of U.S. history. And nobody really highlighted that for me before until I wrote a letter to President Barack Obama in 2016. And he wrote me back and he emphasized that to me in his letter. Very, very, very touching letter. I've included it in my book, by the way, in the back. And so I thought, you know, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to finish this. I'm going to write this and publish it so that we can be part of the fabric that makes America so great. Oh, amazing. Yeah, you received that letter from the President of the United States. You write, after a life spent trying to find and validate my place in the world, I felt honored to have a president of the most powerful nation in the free world hear me and understand me. You go on to say that in the end, each of us has a story to tell and an inherent need to know that our stories matter, that we matter. Although no two stories can ever be entirely alike, we can find common ground in each other's experiences and the strength to move forward during difficult times. For those out there right now that are listening to this who are not feeling like they matter, who are living in homes right now where they may be being abused, they may feel suffocated, frightened, and alone, what words do you have for them to validate what they're experiencing, to validate their worth? Absolutely, you matter. You matter or you wouldn't be in this world. Our God, our Allah, our whoever we choose, our creator created us because we matter and we all have a purpose in this world. Some of us may know it from the very early life and some of us may know it as we get older and some of us may not know it till the end. But absolutely, each one of us If we weren't here, if we came to this earth and we left, you know that you mattered to somebody. Somebody's going to miss you tremendously. And so, yes, we matter. And it's incumbent upon us to not only love others and be productive, but to love ourselves. Love ourselves because we are important in every corner of our lives. And we matter to so many people you don't even know. And there's always tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. (laughs) And just be grateful for it. And if not, then there's always 
alternative <laughs> to tomorrow, <laughs> eternity. <laughs> you wrote in the book, there's always a way to help people if you look. For people who are experiencing stress today due to COVID-19 mm-hmm. and they want to transform their stress into a positive action, what are some ways that you've been seeing where people can help others today? Well, you can give an old friend or a neighbor or somebody that you know a telephone call. Call them, see how you're doing. It's, you know, to check on them, see how they're doing, how their day's going, or a text or you know, with all this social media stuff, keep in touch with people. I personally do that every day. I call one person every day. And I also volunteer for a nonprofit here in my town that prepares lunches for women in in need in our community. And we take precautions, but I go in and help cook and prepare the lunches and we pass them out. So I do that once a week. That helps, gives me purpose too. Makes me feel like I'm doing something. And we can all do that in our own way. Absolutely. Just keep in touch. That's so powerful. People underestimate the power of that that phone call, that check-in. People underestimate, you know, we mm-hmm. think we've got to do all these huge things to help these big problems. But if we start out by just doing a little bit, making a call, that can be life-changing and life-preserving as well. 100%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions? Sure. All right. Who are you thankful for today? First of all, my God, my Allah, my God, my creator, my universe, (laughs) and the universe that creates everything. I am very thankful for that. I'm also thankful for my father, who was passed when I was in graduate school, for always, always supporting me. My second husband, I'm very grateful for him, and I'm grateful for my daughters. Oh, my God. They kept me going so many times. Children are such a godsend. Yes, those. that's what I'm grateful for and now every day. <laughs> all right. And now, now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today? I'm thankful for my abundance, my he- health, my good health, my family, my home. My choices, my freedom to have choices and the abundance. I'm very, very thankful every day. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) How do you fuel the fire within you? Some days the fire is hotter than the other, (laughs) others, I should say. (laughs) But it's always been, for me, even when I was young, it was connecting with others and helping others. That's why I became a nurse. That's why I became an officer in the army. That's why I became a mentor to so many younger people within the army and outside. I just have this self-satisfaction. It sounds selfish, but it's a satisfaction that helps keep me going, knowing that I've helped someone else. What is one thing adversity taught you to value? Okay, so I say that helping others helps fuel my fire. Sometimes I forgot myself. And the one thing that adversity has taught me to value is to value myself, to value my own time, to take care of myself, 
to love myself because if I don't, how can I help others? And so adversity has truly taught me how to do that and to realize that I'm really stronger than I ever thought I was. Yeah, and it, and it boosted my self-esteem, you know, that, yeah, yeah, I'm stronger. I'm more confident than I thought I was. What are you doing today? You may have never thought you could. Talking to you on this show. (laughs) 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 Yeah, talking to you on this show. I never, you know, I just never thought that would be possible. But I thought, oh, this is cool. (laughs) (laughs) Glad you you came on the show today. What will you do? (laughs) And what will you do tomorrow that you may have never thought you could? This is a constant thing that I work on is my fears. You know, we all have little monkeys in our mind, little fears that say, well, what if, what if, what if? And I know that tomorrow will will be better than today in that aspect that I let go of the fears of judgment from others and not worry about that. Amazing. (laughs) How can people learn more about you and your amazing work? You get to this point in your life. <laughs> you get to this point in life and you better I better have learned something. <laughs> yeah. And in writing my book, I'd learned a lot about myself. Yeah. I did. And it's it was it was a, a combination of strengths and a combination of purging, purging the issues in me. And sharing them with others because I know I'm not alone in any or all these issues. I know I'm not. And it helps one or two people in any of those situations that I write about in my book, then I feel like I've accomplished something with my book other than just give a historical story for my family and for society. Yeah, you're, you're a guiding light to people who feel alone or have had similar suffering in their life. And to read your book and to, to have, you know, such, a, such an amazing person share their story with them, it gives them light. It gives them, you know, the hope to say, well, she made it. She made it. She's done what she has done. She's an example and a mentor and somebody who's inspiring me to get out of similar situations and suffering. It's a wonderful thing. And I'm glad you decided to write it. Thank you. You can do this. Yes, you can do this. How can people (laughs) buy your book? Where do they need to go? Oh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble, Apple Books. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I have a website, monajohnsonauthor.com. Email monajohnsonauthor at gmail.com. And I'm on Facebook, Mona Johnson Author. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time here today. Everybody buy the book. It's called Not Created Equal, an immigrant Muslim woman's pursuit of equality in her family, the army and America. Such a pleasure to talk with you today, Mona. Wish you and yours the very best of life. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much. It was great meeting you. 